and welcome to the Therapeutic Teaching Podcast. I'm Shahana Knight, the founder of TPC Therapy and the creator of the Therapeutic Schools Award and the Therapeutic Teaching Course. And every week I'll be talking about all things related to well-being and mental health in schools. Think of this podcast as your weekly dose of inspirational goodness to go out there and make a real difference in the lives of the children that you're working with. Each week will be full of innovative ideas, inspirational stories, practical guidance and even some freebies so that we can actually redefine what school should be for the children of today. You have so much power to make some real changes so let me show you how. I'm so glad you found me here. Let's jump right in. Hi everyone, welcome to another podcast episode. Today we're going to jump right in and we're going to start exploring childhood trauma, what childhood trauma looks like, how it can present in school, and then a really effective way to help children start to explore their trauma through play therapy. So obviously, for those of you that have been listening to my podcast, I am a play therapist by trade, so I haven't practiced play therapy for at least three years, but I now run a team of play therapists and I actually have hands-on experience of what it's like to be in the playroom with the children. And I wanted to share some of those experiences with you so that you can kind of get a behind the scenes look at how play therapy is so powerful. And honestly, it really, really is. But first I want to talk about childhood trauma in general and what that might be like for children. So again, today I want to dive behind the child to unpick what's going on and to really start to think about what life might be like for those children. Because it's so easy for us to think about children with trauma and sort of just see it as a name or a label. So I know that child experienced childhood trauma or I know that child is struggling with um, loss or I know that child is struggling with um, being in care. But we don't actually attribute that to real life scenarios. And just as humans by nature, one of the things that we do is we assume that our reality is everybody else's reality. And so if we haven't got those experiences, it's really easy to just assume that Christmas is the same for everyone or weekends are the same for everyone or evenings are the same for everyone and they're not. So I think it's important as educators that we just take a step back and we look at what lives could be like for the children in our classes because we don't get time to do that in our day to day. So what is childhood trauma? So when I say childhood trauma, I mean any type of trauma that a child might have to go through, either previously or currently. So that might be things like living with a family who are experiencing domestic violence. So maybe the parents are domestically violent towards each other, maybe one of them is domestically violent, or maybe the family have moved through a series of domestic violent partners. You often find um, women who are with a, a partner who's domestically violent and then they move on to another partner who is similarly domestically violent and the cycle continues. So the children are dragged through um, different experiences of multiple men who are all dangerous, scary and hurting them or hurting their parent and that can be really, really tricky because it's just repetitive trauma, repetitive cycles over and over again. Um, But that's not to say that men aren't also subject to domestic violence because they too can be subject to domestic violence as well. Or it might be that you've got children who are in care. So maybe they're in foster care or maybe they've just been adopted. Um, Loads and loads and loads more children now are going into care. And that might be for a number of reasons. Maybe they have experienced abuse. So that might be physical abuse where they're being hurt. That might be sexual abuse. 
or it might be emotional abuse. Now, when I was growing up, I had a lot of emotional abuse and actually that can be really difficult to detect. You know, it's very, very hard to determine whether a parent is emotionally hurting somebody by the words that they use, by the actions that they do, by the games that they play, emotionally kind of messing with your mind. That's really, really hard to detect. A lot harder to detect than a child who maybe has physical bruises or um, can recount a story that's happened to them. But it's really difficult to pinpoint emotional abuse. And I found that really hard as a child to communicate with people that the intensity of that and I often didn't even realize it was abuse we didn't I didn't identify that that was an issue to be honest for a long long time and I'll look at that a little bit more in a minute um so there's lots of other reasons as well maybe somebody's died in the family you know my company deals a lot with um children who've experienced murder so it might be that they've experienced a murder and then they've been taken into care so there's loads and loads and loads of reasons and it might also be simple things like when I say trauma it doesn't have to be something that's really complex it might be something like parents have separated that can often be quite traumatic you know you might be seven years old your parents might separate you then have to decide who you're going to live with you're, or you're asked who you're going to live with you then have to move all of your things you have to understand what that means for you in your life you have to see or hear arguments frustrations conflict that can be really tricky and for children that can stay with you you know i remember sitting with um a group of year five kids in a school once not long before lockdown so last sort of probably early this year and we were talking about our feelings and I was doing one of the happiness project lessons. We were talking about our feelings and one of the children started to share how he remembers this day where his parents separated and he, they told him and then he, was, he started crying and he was saying, and I had to choose, I remember having to choose and I had to sit there and they asked me, who do you want to live with? Who do you want to live with? And he was just, it was heartbreaking to hear. And he was saying, and I didn't want to choose. I wanted to live with my mum, but I felt really bad for my dad. So I said, my dad, I said, my dad, but I didn't want to live with my dad. I wanted to live with my mum. And he was crying and crying and crying. And you could see that he was reliving it as he was talking. And the anguish of having to choose a parent, but not only choosing a parent for yourself, who you want to live with, but also then thinking and taking into consideration all of their feelings. How will they feel if I leave them? Are they going to feel abandoned? Do they think that that means I think that other parent I've chosen is my favourite? So many things for this poor young boy. And he was sat in this circle, I remember because he was directly in front of me, and he was really emotional. And obviously I always encourage his friends to sort of hug each other and to look after each other. So his friends had um, their arms around him. And then he'd finished speaking and I was like, you know, so brave of you to share. That must have been a really awful situation. So difficult to choose a parent. You've been really brave sharing your experiences. And the next thing you know, these kids started to just share, that's happened to me, that's happened to me. And there was probably four in a class of around, I think I had probably had about just close to 30, maybe 27, 28. And there was four of them in that room who had these same intense feelings around parents separating. So even though you might think, oh, you know, it was four or five years ago, that doesn't mean it doesn't have a long lasting impression. These big emotional life events are so difficult to navigate through emotionally. And if you haven't had 
any emotional support, nobody sort of guided you through those emotional states, those feelings, those um, behaviors that might come with that, the internal thoughts that might come with that, then you're kind of left in this place of just figuring it out for yourself. And those feelings follow you around. You never really deal with it or process it because no one's ever helped you through it. No one's ever helped you to do that. And the best time to do that is in the moment. But obviously, it takes a very, very skilled, self-aware parent um, to be able to guide their children emotionally while they're in emotional turmoil as well. And they're dealing with their own traumas, their own feelings. So trauma comes in all shapes and sizes. It really can be parents separating all the way through to murder. And there's loads of others that I haven't mentioned. But what happens when we experience trauma is that it can stay with us. Now, sometimes trauma is a one-off event and it happens. So for example, it might be that you've been in a car crash and that stays with you and you have to try and process that experience and the memories are there and maybe it affects your sleep and it affects your thought process and it affects your um, ability to sort of be calm because you've got a lot of stress hormones. Or maybe it's repetitive trauma repetitive trauma is the trauma that I generally work with most in schools and that is the children who've experienced domestic violence or have been in care or who for example are living with, with divorced parents but it's still really difficult to manage they're still at loggerheads with each other um, and there are loads and loads it might have been a death lots of other things but repetitive trauma is where it continues to happen you're continuously in that trauma and it might be that you have a series of traumatic events so for me I lived with a, a dad who was depressed, so that was one trauma. I also lived with a dad who was alcoholic, so that was a secondary trauma. And there was a lot of emotional abuse, so that was a third trauma. And because of all of that, I had attachment difficulties. So actually, if you looked at a list of all the different things that can happen to people um, that are traumatic, I could tick off a lot more than one. And that's the case for many of the children in school. It isn't just a one-stop thing. Trauma will happen, and often with very vulnerable families, there are loads of layers to that trauma. You might have lack of money, that might be quite traumatic. You might be addicted to something, that might be quite traumatic. You might also be experiencing abuse. So there's loads and loads of different things. Now the impact of trauma is what is really important for us in school and I think that we do not give it enough attention. Now it's very easy when you go into a classroom to sit in front of these 30 kids and to expect them all to be functioning in the same way. You know you're going to stand up, you're going to do the register and you expect them all to sit there and listen. You then expect them to be able to open their books, start the first lesson, listen to instructions, follow your instructions. But actually some of the really basic skills that we're expecting children to have, like listening and concentration, um, like being able to problem solve, are just not there for kids with trauma. They're just not. And we don't give that enough time and enough space. And we don't allow that for these young people. We forget. We forget that they've got other things that are going on that are impacting them every second of every day. So for example, you're gonna see children who have really low concentration. You're gonna see kids who are really hyperactive. That hyperactivity is not necessarily things like ADHD. That hyperactivity actually could be really high stress levels. When you have a lot of stress hormone running around your body that doesn't have anywhere to go because you're constantly in a state of stress, because it's constantly happening to you, you're constantly experiencing traumatic experiences, that stress doesn't have anywhere to go, it's trapped. That's a lot of excess energy. 
You might need that at home so you can hide under the bed and run away from dad when he's drunk or so that you can have a huge argument and fight back when someone's screaming at you or so that you can figure out how to keep yourself safe in whatever the scenario is. But in school, when you're sat at a table expected to read a book, where's that energy going to go? It's going to go into flicking your pencil or flicking your leg or messing with your shoelace or your straps on your shoe on the carpet. Does anybody have that? Where it goes... That isn't a child being naughty or distracting everybody or being silly. That's a child who has excess energy with nowhere else to go and it needs to come out. So it's going to come out in low level disruptive behaviours or hyperactivity. There's loads of other things as well, you know, struggling with relationship skills, friendship making skills, conflict within relationships, understanding some else's frame of reference and empathizing with somebody else you're not going to empathize with somebody else if you've got all this stuff going on for you you're just focused on you and what you need to do to get through the day you're not bothered about jack and why jack's crying that's the least of your problems you've got all these other things to process is dad going to be drunk when i get home is mum going to be there which house am i going to who's going to feed me what time's tea am i going to get tea there's all of these things that are going on under the surface that we forget that are there you're going to have intrusive thoughts I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy, I can't do this, I'm unlovable. All of these things that impact every decision, every behaviour, every effort that they do. You know, you might be asking them to shoot a hoop in basketball, they might be thinking, I can't do this, I can't do anything, I'm not good enough, I can't, I've not got the confidence. And that will not come from basketball, that will come from life experience. There's so, so much And you guys will know that because you're going to see that in your classroom every day. You're going to see children who get stressed really easily, who, like we've said before, have triggers and suddenly they're in meltdown mode. Suddenly they're really angry. Suddenly they're kicking off and getting so cross with their friends or biting or spitting. And what we do is we always focus our attention on the behavior. Now, if you listen to last week's podcast, we talked about behavior and behavior management. And we talked about this thing that we do where we focus so much attention and energy on behavior, 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 and we forget the feeling. We're also forgetting the circumstance. What is the circumstance? So this can thread through so much of your day. Why is that child late? Why is that child late and hungry and tired, which is why they're not concentrating on maths? Why is that child refusing to do a piece of work? Probably because they don't have the confidence to do it or because it's another challenge. Very often, if you're challenged all the time in your day, you don't want another challenge. You don't want something else you have to try really, really, really hard at because everything is hard enough. So it's simple things like that that we just need to start thinking about in the background. And just the general impact for each child is different. You know, I remember when I was growing up, this one really horrendous week, I I mean, it pieced it all together, but I don't really remember it really clearly, but I do remember. So my dad had really long hair, like one of the Beatles. Think about like channeling the Beatles. And um, really long hair. And he was kind of like, it was gorgeous to look at. Beard, moustache, long hair, ripped jeans, just chilled, really cool looking guy when he was in his element, when he wasn't really poorly. And we always knew him as this guy with really long hair. You know, that was just part of who he was. It wasn't super long, like down to his shoulders or anything. It was just kind of like around his ears. Um, well, just below his ears, but it was long and flicky. And he was having a particularly tough week, drinking a lot. And I remember this one day, one night, he woke us up in the middle of the night, me and my brother. So again, I always peg every memory to seven or eight. It probably wasn't. It was probably in the region of sort of seven onwards, 
sort of primary school age and he woke up in the middle of the night and he'd shaved all of his hair off in the night and left a big patch at the back and he asked me and my brother to shave the rest for him so it was the dead of night it was freezing cold and I remember him just having a razor like um, an electric razor and being like Matthew 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 to my brother like shave this off shave this off and I remember just thinking oh my god this is the most traumatic horrendous thing I was so so scared I was terrified like I felt sick I wanted to scream I didn't know who I was looking at what I was looking at I couldn't believe he'd done that to himself and it was a botched job as well so he had to then shave the rest of the hair off. Now that was extremely traumatic for us, very difficult for us. Then we were expected to go back to bed, wake up in the morning, act like nothing had happened. Mum was beside herself traumatised, but they sent us to school. And I remember not wanting to go. And I remember walking to my friend's house. I remember my um, one of mum's friends used to look after us sometimes. And I remember going to hers and saying, I'm not going to school. I refuse to go to school, don't wanna to go to school. And I remember sitting at hers all day and we didn't tell mum and dad that we didn't go in because I was just so traumatized by it all. Now I could have gone to school and me being me, I would have sat down, I would have done my work, I would have helped my friends, I would have done everything I was supposed to do, but I wouldn't have been there. I wouldn't have been there internally in my mind. and. That is what we forget when we're looking at children. We're forgetting what is it they're going home to? What is it they're coming in with? You know, what is it they're thinking and feeling? What are their struggles? And can we just expect them to get through the day to day? We can't and we have to be really careful about how we approach these children. And that's why therapeutic language comes into play so much. That's why it's so important to be therapeutic because you don't know and you never will know all the details. But what you can know is that today is a rough day or there's a trigger there's something that's making this child not be able to concentrate. And it isn't just laziness and the fact they're not concentrating very, very often. And, and I mean, when I started this job, and I think I've said this in a podcast early on, I remember doing going into schools as a play therapist. And I remember there was maybe one or two kids in every class that were struggling. And the teachers would say, this child is constantly struggling, they need play therapy. Now, when we send our therapists out to schools, there's six or seven children who need therapy in every class. And the, the head teacher's having to pick which child needs the most support because every single one of them has got these complex histories. So what we need to be really careful of is that if we have a generation where we're not guiding them, we're not explaining to them what's going on, we're not supporting them, and then they're growing up, they're not going to be emotionally resilient, they're not going to have self-awareness, they're not going to be able to regulate themselves, they're not going to be able to have empathy for others and, and understand what's going on for them. And so it's going to be a repeated cycle. Now, trauma often in families will repeat itself. You know, if things are really difficult and you've never had that guidance or that's the sort of the people and the experiences that you have, you often find yourself trapped in this narrative. If you want to break free from that narrative and some people do really effectively break free from that narrative, then that's great. But you still need that guidance around what's going on. Nobody ever sat down with me and said, you know, you're feeling really overwhelmed. This was a really scary situation. It must have been really shocking for you. You know, it's okay to feel un like nervous. It's okay to feel uncomfortable. It's okay to want to cry every time you look at him, like all of these things. And to express that and explain that to me as I was living my day-to-day -day life, there was no one there to do that. And it's really important that we start to skill ourselves up to be able to do that, given the fact that most of the class are dealing with emotional trauma or emotional difficulties and struggles and adverse experiences. So if we miss that big piece of the puzzle, we're doing all the kids an injustice 
and we're expecting them to do something that they actually cannot do, which in itself is really unfair because we're supposed to be an establishment that's providing children with the opportunities for life. We're supposed to be providing them with the opportunity to be their very best selves and be able to be ready for the world, give to the world and contribute to the world in a positive way, contribute to society in a positive way. We can't do that if we miss half of the puzzle. And emotional emotional intelligence, emotional support, awareness, all of those things, that's our very core. Learning can only come as a secondary thing to that. And so we're expecting our children to do all of these things when actually the part of their brain, and I've talked about this before, the part of their brain that we need for them to learn isn't even on. So what are we doing? You know, we're expecting children to do that when they've got all the stress hormone, they're in survival mode, their thinking brain is off. In their thinking brain, I've said this so many times, but I want this to really just be instilled in you. In your thinking brain, you can problem solve, you can reason, you've got empathy, you have concern for other people, you can process and reflect on what's going on for yourself and your memory is on. If you're in your reptilian brain, your survival brain, your thinking brain is completely shut down. You can't think, you can't remember, you can't problem solve, you don't care about other people's feelings, you physically cannot learn anything and yet we're expecting the children to come in and learn. And we think that not giving them any of that emotional support, or we don't think not giving it, we just don't do it, is gonna is not gonna be such an important thing and actually is. And what we're finding is that we're sending children off to high school after year six, knowing they're likely to get excluded, knowing they're not ready for high school and they can't cope with high school. Because all we've done all year is put plasters over the situation. We've told them off, we've sent them out, we've given them detention, we might have excluded them, we might have put them in a lower group for work, um, we might have just been coasting, maybe they've been in nurture group loads of times. But what we're not doing is actually helping them heal. And I think as a basic offering as a school primary school should be offering children the chance to heal because just like we're offering them the chance to learn about maths just like we're offering the children a chance to flourish and learn life skills in lots of other ways this is just as important it's such a huge piece of the puzzle about what makes us who we are and what makes us capable that we cannot actually ignore it if we truly want to make a difference for the children. So that brings me on to then, how do we do that? One of the best ways to support children in your school with their emotional um, trauma and struggles and feelings and behaviour is through play therapy. Now I know loads and loads of schools have counsellors and that's great, but play therapy is slightly different to counselling because counselling expects the children to be able to talk about and verbalise what's gone on for them. Well, children can't. And a lot of adults can't verbalise and um, organise in their thoughts and then get it out into words and into language, what's happened to them and how it's affected them because no one's guided them through that to give them that awareness and that knowledge. So if we were all therapeutic teachers and we all guided our children every single day from nursery onwards and then you referred a year five student for play therapy, they would have the skills to be able to organise their thoughts and feelings and explain to you, well, you know, sometimes I do get really angry and I get really angry because I'm frustrated, because I feel trapped, because at home X, Y and Z is going on. And so sometimes when I'm in school, I can take that out on my friends. That is a child who's self-aware and that's how we can... Um, navigate through counselling. You can't do that when you're a child. Often you don't even know you're in trauma or you don't even know how the trauma's impacting you because like I didn't, you don't know it's emotional abuse. You don't know what that even is. 
So how can you put that into words and verbalize that in a therapy session? You can't. It's great to have someone to talk to. It's great to have that close relationship with someone and that will have alleviating effects. But if you want to truly heal the child, you've got to go really deep. And as we know, children communicate best through play, through creativity, through symbolism. That is how they are designed and programmed to express themselves. And that's their natural state. It's their natural way to organize the world. You know, if you put children in a room with pots and pans and a kitchen, they'll play out mums and dads in kitchens. And that's because they're experimenting. What is it like to be a parent? What is it like to be a giver, a nurturer? What is it like to... Um, use these things and experience these things and they might play out things that they've heard so often if you're in a nursery or reception year you'll hear them talking about what their parents say at home or you know they'll regurgitate things that they've heard on tv or that they've witnessed in the world because they're organizing their thoughts and feelings around that situation and trying to make sense of it and the more they play that out the more they can understand it and that's how play therapy works so for us we have a team of therapists that go out and they all have a play therapy kit and in that kit is loads of really cool things that help the children to express themselves now when i say children we actually work all the way up to in play therapy probably like 14 and then past that we'll do creative therapy which is very very similar it's just not called play but actually if they need the same resources, that's what they'll get. And so these resources are all designed to help the children to express themselves through play and creativity, not to do something that's surface level. So we don't take things like board games in, because you can play a board game, but it's not very therapeutic in that it doesn't help you uncover and unpick some of the things that have gone on for you um, the quickest way possible. And what we're looking for is we're looking for the, the way to help the children express themselves with the least resistance. They don't have to sort of figure out how they have got something that helps them to figure out how quite quickly. Whereas a board game, you could figure out how you problem solve through board games. You could figure out that you get stuck when there's a challenge, but it's a harder way to do that. It's much easier to get into role play and role play that out. So our therapists have things like puppets, um, they have dolls, like everything that you can think of for a doll, nappies, bottles, dummies, um, all like baby wipes, the clothes, all those sorts of things. Um, I remember when I used to take in actual bottles, like baby bottles, and they would be full with water. Um, and so in each child's session, they were able to drink a full bottle of water if they wanted, a baby bottle, um, or suck on a dummy. We have um, art, loads of art stuff. So clay, we have um, paper, pens, feathers, all of those sorts of things, anything and everything you can think of to just get creative and, and artistic. Um, and then we have a doll's house so that they can recreate family scenes. We often find that or recreate home life or dynamics within the family that we see. And sometimes they actually recreate like circumstances that they've been through themselves in those rooms. We also have a sand tray, which is my favorite part of the toolkit and this can be used sand therapy can be used all the way up through to like being an adult and the sand kit has sand but it's not like you know if you're in um reception and you see the big sort of blue deep trays of sand it's not that it's like a thin um thin tray 
wooden tray with a blue bottom and sand inside it so you can sit in front of it you can see the whole tray and it's quite shallow but deep enough to sort of dig a little bit and with that tray is loads of miniature things so I'm thinking like little miniature trees plastic trees plastic animals people of all shapes sizes cultures races and abilities um, we have random things like coffins and skeletons and tea lights and fairies and wizards and um, creatures that look like they're in the middle of a war and army people we have random stuff like toilets um, and guns and bottles of alcohol so it's full and full and full and full and full with all these things all these symbols that represent something the child might have been through and they can sit in front of this tray and build a world and often we find that they will build a world that represents what's going on inside them so I've seen plenty of children who've experienced domestic violence build wars and maybe within that war there's a little baby trapped in a cage buried under the sand and that is them that is their internal self trapped amongst this war so you can see it is very symbolic it's very it's very subconscious as well they don't they don't really know they're doing it we can sit there and we can look at this and we're trained to be able to understand what some of these things might mean then we reflect back some of the feelings of those characters so I would be reflecting back gosh it looks like it's so difficult that war and it's very chaotic it must be really hard to be in that but we're not talking about the war we're talking about what the life might be like for that child so it's really a lot of, there's a lot of skills that come into it but the sand tray is my favorite bit because it's so symbolic and you know I've seen children who have um, experienced abuse who will lock up a figure in a cage and send the cage off in a boat on a river that's so symbolic isn't it it's like get this person out of my life I need this person away and over time the, tr the trays will change so often the war becomes a scene of peace and there's houses and people and gifts and presents and lovely things or they might move through to creating um scenes around hope so it might be that it's like a scene where there's um loads of people helping each other and supporting each other or whatever but it's just honestly that's a bit that i miss i think you can tell as i'm talking about it i want to get in a play therapy session and um, but i really miss seeing those trays evolve because it was so special to be part of that and i suppose what i'm getting at here is that the play therapists use all of these resources to see the internal state of the child and that is so unique and such a special responsibility that they have that often even if you've commissioned play therapy you don't really understand that because it's a therapy so very often therapists will have to say you know it's confidential and we do that as well but obviously we share as much as we can around what's going on in those sessions so we will share with you you know there's loads of conflict and um, they're struggling with identity they're struggling with them and their confidence they're struggling with x y and z there's lots of things coming up about home but we won't tell you about that centre with the war or that baby on the boat so you get this internal visual picture you know you might have children running around the playroom fighting I remember having this one child who'd experienced severe loss his parents had separated because of domestic violence and the male figure was really quite domestically violent and the children were removed for neglect and mum not protecting the children but she had another baby and she was allowed to keep that other baby but this particular boy was still removed but he was living with family members so he could see his mum and this baby living their life and she would get this baby presents at Christmas presents for their birthdays and he never received any of those things so he had this whole thing of being abandoned and unloved and you know what about me what about what about me am I not good enough am I not lovable 
and in school he would present as really needy he would sit on the teacher's laps when that was inappropriate and he would want to come for cuddles he was overly needy with his friends so people didn't want to be around him and he was labeled as weird and he labeled himself as weird and it was all around this need for being lo to be loved and i remember he came in the playroom one day and we had obviously we had all the dolls out we had all the puppets and stuff and he literally came in the room turned the lights off and he was like we're going to massacre everyone we're going to kill everyone and we went around the room and literally pretended to sort of shoot and kill and by the end of that session everybody was on the floor now if you take yourself into the mind of the child what did that look like like to have all of those people and that was his mum and his dad and his all these different people what must have that felt like for him to truly believe that he was doing that because when you play as a child it's very real for you. It's not a game. It's very real for you. It's safe enough to go to really dark places because it's got the envelope of play, but actually it's so real. And so what you gain from that is real as well. If you can gain confidence from that, if you can gain perspective from that, if you can gain a sense of control from that, that's very real. So the more they do that, the more they're gathering these skills, but that session, oh my God, stay with me till this day because I could see what he could see and it was terrifying. And then over time, he started to not need to do that as much. And it became around nurture and he would play with the baby doll and he would talk about him being a dad and how he would never hurt his own children. And he looked after this doll and dressed this doll and took care of this doll. And actually this doll for a little while became the baby that he knew existed that he didn't have a relationship with as well. And it was very complex. But when he walked out of that room, you'd never know. He was going that deep and that much into his life that he was laying it all out bare for everyone to see in that playroom. And I was the person who had the privilege of walking that with him and reflecting that back constantly to him about his feelings and his emotions and the complexities of it all. And by the time he'd finished play therapy, he was extremely confident. He had a few good friends, and I'm not gonna say he was the most popular child in the world, but he had a few good friends compared to having no friends. He didn't label himself as weird anymore, and he was less needy, he was less vulnerable. And he still struggled a little bit, but there was a lot more progress for that young boy by the time he was sort of, I think he was in year five when he came to me, so by the time he was in year six. And I could tell you story after story after story, but the way the children use the playroom to heal themselves is beyond anything I've ever seen. And you cannot do that with counselling, you cannot do that with talking, because the, chi the children have to be able to get in those roles and really relive those roles. I remember as well this one young boy who was probably in year four when he came to me and he had a little boy, two young brothers who were really close together. One was in nursery, one was in reception. And he was like the older one, so he would look after the others. And his family, again, there was a lot of domestic violence in that family to the point where my dad actually was, was jailed for the things that he did. Um, and so he was not only experiencing the loss of his dad, which obviously, although there was a lot of stress, a lot of um, danger, a lot of fear there, he also emulated his dad, you know, wanted to be like his dad. Um, and there was times where they were connected and they drew together and they did things together. So he was dealing with that loss. And it, there, was very, there was a very real apparent thing that he'd never really been able to be a child. He hadn't played, he hadn't enjoyed childhood in the way that he needed. And he was desperate for some sort of love and nurture. And he'd often been witnessed by the police, you know, holding his parents away from each other because they were fighting and all sorts of horrible things. And I remember this day I got him into the playroom for the first time and he sussed the playroom out. And very quickly, over the succession of his sessions, he just went for it. 
I'd never seen anything like it. The first few sessions, he became a baby and he would lay on the floor. He would put a blanket on him and he would suck the dummy and he would just stay there for the whole 40 minute session. And I would pretend to be the mum. So I'd cover him up and I'd pat her around and I'd check the baby and all of that. And then slowly, slowly he grew up in the playroom. So then he would do his first steps, he would crawl and do his first steps. And then he was doing his first words. And then he started doing mark making and doing his first marks and it was extraordinary because then when he'd grown up in the playroom through play to the age that he actually was, he started to draw these amazing elaborate cartoon pictures and he would draw like his dad stealing stuff and started to sort of draw some of the memories that he'd had. And then when he felt safe enough to do that because there was no judgment from me, you know, I'm not going to sit there and tell him he can't do something. So there's no judgment. So he then he realised it was safe enough to do maybe some of the darker stuff, maybe some of the scarier stuff. And then he started to do sand tray work and he would literally play out the things that had happened in his life. And there was a lot of war, there was a lot of battle, there was a lot of violence and, and hurt. And he had gone from being a child who was very volatile. He would pull people's chairs out, tell them he was gonna like splat them, um, like blood out their head, all sorts of things. He was really, really struggling, very angry, very aggressive and he just couldn't work. His work was at a really low standard. His teachers struggled to even get him to engage. He often spent most of his days sat in year six on the floor because his behavior was that bad. So there wasn't really a therapeutic approach for this child at that point. Um, really tough. By the time he'd worked through all of this stuff, he was on the top table. He would come in and do extra work at dinner time and break because he wanted to catch up. He wanted to do more work. His relationship with his teacher was amazing. He still struggled. He still had trauma in his life. He still had, I mean, mum was having miscarriages and getting in with new partners and all sorts throughout that period of time. But he, in school, felt safe, he felt secure. He was able to express all these horrendous things and then he was able to learn because he'd got out all of those things, he'd processed all of those things. So by the time he was in his classroom, he was able to have a little bit of space, a little bit of time to actually concentrate because a lot of that stress had been alleviated through the sessions. And he only saw me once a week. So play therapy can have a huge impact for the children in your care. And even if you don't see an impact of that play therapy work straight away. It is well worth investing in play therapy for your children because you can see just from my experiences, just from talking about play therapy, the depth and the rawness that those children have the opportunity to explore and get out is going to set them up for life. They're going to be in a better position to go to high school. They're going to have some insight into some of the things that have gone on. So they're gonna be able to actually learn and retain information and therefore they've got better outcomes, they've got better opportunities. And even if they're still struggling, which is very rare, we often see children, you know, there's always progression, there's always like things that teachers will say, my God, this has happened now, we never saw that before. You know, the, the success rate for play therapy is something like 80%, it's really high up in the scales but you know you're investing your money into something these children actually need. And because we get people premium, because we get the opportunity, thank God, to give back to our children's mental health, that's the kind of stuff you should be investing in because that's really getting in there to where they actually need it. If I'd have had play therapy in school, I'd be a genius because I battled through all my stuff and still tried to be the very best I could be. But a lot of children can't do that. So 
I think if we're thinking about mental health and well-being, then one of the things that we need to do is start to think about how can we help as an as a industry? What are some of the things that we can put in place while they're in our care, while they're safe at school, while we're building this nurturing environment that gives them the opportunity to work through those emotions? Because that's going to give them better outcomes. That's going to help them flourish. And essentially, it's going to help them to do what we are, what I hope education is there for, which is to help these children to flourish in the world and be better citizens and give back to society and do something in their life that actually is worth doing and makes them feel good, you know, and this gives them the opportunity to do that. So I suppose what I'm saying is that we need to be able to give the children the opportunity to work through some of these things. If we know it's a barrier to learning, if we know they're struggling with concentration and friendships, and we also know that something's going on at home, we've got to be able to funnel them through into some sort of intervention to help with that. Because otherwise we're ignoring, we're ignoring the real core problem, we're putting plasters over the core problem, and we're not actually helping. And you know, that child could actually have the potential to be someone pretty amazing. I know so many children who are really vulnerable, experiencing really complex trauma, like some of those children I've just talked to you about. But they're so clever, they're so in tune, they're so, there's just something about them. Have you ever had that child who you know is really vulnerable, but there's just something about them that is so lovable and so unique. And I think that comes with the trauma, actually. They've developed these things about themselves that just make them a little bit more special. But they can either go one of two ways. They can either be that really special, amazing person that they've molded themselves into to get some nurture from the adults around them, or they can feel rejection and they can feel like no one cares and they will literally become part of the system. They will turn to drugs, alcohol, abuse, they'll continue the cycles because nobody intervened, nobody stepped in when they were that vulnerable little child who just needed some support. And that is our role. So if you can, at any point in your career, help a child emotionally through therapy, please, please do, because it could literally change their life. And regardless of how that affects your stats and your outcomes for your school, you can go to sleep at night knowing that you are changing children's lives through giving them the opportunity to go through that intervention. Anyway, I hope this podcast has been helpful and eye-opening and hopefully inspirational. I know lots of people who listen to play therapy stuff and go, oh my God, I want to be a play therapist. I actually have a play therapist on my team who used to be the deputy head of a school I used to work in. So really interesting stuff, but really great. It's so inspiring. And if you want to read more about it, you can look on the website. But this isn't a play therapy plug. It literally is just to give you some awareness and to help you understand how trauma can be impacting children in your care and something that you can do about it. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening and I'll see you in another episode. Bye. I hope you've loved this week's episode of the Therapeutic Teaching Podcast. If you want more help and support to become a therapeutic teacher but don't know where to start, then head to tpctherapy.co.uk and enrol in my free course now and get started.